Um, now, in all seriousness, um, we're going to continue our uh, study that we started two weeks ago on Jonathan Edwards, and I thought I would bring a slightly different perspective this time. I want to give a little bit more information of, uh, on Jonathan Edwards and some of the things that have been said uh, about him. And I draw some of that information from Ian uh, Murray's book on Jonathan Edwards. And uh, I read this book many years ago, and I'm just starting to reread it again. Uh, but I thought it would be good to go through some of this in light of um, some of the things that we'll be reading out of Jonathan Edwards' um, uh, complete works, his diary. We're going to be focusing in on his diary. And one of the things that uh, I thought would be edifying to us would be to see how the giants of the faith struggle with some of the issues that they had in their day. Now, you might think that giants of the faith like Jonathan Edwards would struggle with things like uh, doctrinal issues, uh, struggle with some of the, the uh, higher points of divinity. But he, he struggled with his own sinfulness, as, as we do as well. And one of the things that I want to bring out is how he dealt with them. Now, he, he, in his diary, and I'll get into this in a little bit, but I think it's important to read through his diary um, and, um, and understand and get into the mind of Jonathan Edwards and how he dealt with some of the problems. And some of the problems, or many of the problems, that we encounter even today. And I'm not going to read all of them, but I would like to read some of them that I think would be germane to our own Christian living today and how he addressed them in his own life. And I don't think, uh, to, to address uh, the point that Adam made last time, is I don't think he's trying to mandate or to regulate our thoughts. I think he's trying to, to show in his own words, his own struggles that he had at his time. And uh, I think they're, they are insightful to the point where we can glean from them some of the practical Christian living habits that, would out, uh, that we can draw out of these particular diary entries. And uh, one of the things that um, um, Ian Murray says in his book, he says, whether or not a biographer of Jonathan Edwards reveals his personal standpoint at the, at the outset makes little difference, for inevitably it will soon be apparent. Edwards divided men in his lifetime, and to no less degree he continues to divide his biographers. Certainly in the many books of which he is the subject, there is no consensus of opinion Almost the only statement about him which will command general acceptance is that he was a great man who was born in 1703 and died at the age of 54 in 1758. <laughs> That's quite a statement, isn't it? Uh, the fact that um, uh, Ian Murray is writing this shows that Jonathan Edwards was controversial in, in many of his views. The nature of his greatness, the significance of his life, and the thought and thought and assessment of his character and writings. On all these and much else, judgments are divided. So as we start to read through some of these things, you'll see that, that Jonathan Edwards um, has been a, a point of contention from many different points, and not just contention, but also for uh, points of, of doctrinal knowledge and insight into the scriptures. And uh, we'll get into some of that as well. But uh, I wanted to start with a quote from uh, Mark Twain. It says, the man who reads bad books has no advantage over the man who reads none. And the point 
the point that he's making is, is that, first of all, you have to read enough bad books to know what the good ones are. And then you know what the bad books are. And uh, by reading some of these biographies of, of the saints and some of the, the, the men of the past, the, the giants of the faith, we come to understand what the good books are. So reading from, reading from um, Ian Murray for a few minutes, um, highlighting this idea of division that Jonathan Edwards caused, and to give you a sense of, of the contention that some people had with Jonathan Edwards. says, this much is now commonly admitted, and yet still without any general agreement, the most popular modern interpreters of Edwards hold that as a religious figure, his is the greatness of religious tragedy. The tragedy being that even for the greatest intellect in the history of American Christianity, his inherited Calvinistic beliefs were too strong for him to overcome. So argues Henry B. Parks. Who is Henry B. Parks? We don't know, but we know who Jonathan Edwards is. You know, so these are the types of critics that were against Jonathan Edwards. There's um, another quote here that I'd like to read to you to show something of the uh, contempt that others had of Jonathan Edwards. And it's a parody. It was not written that long ago, relatively speaking, uh, in 1957. It was by a children's author. Her name is Phyllis McGinley. And I'm not going to, I have the whole poem here if you're interested in it, but I think I will just read the last two stanzas of the verse. And um, um, it goes like this. Uh, we must not, uh, quote, uh, just a little bit of commentary first. We must not, however, expect them to want to reinduce the doctrine which Edwards taught. In a parody in verse on the theology of Jonathan, uh, the title of the poem is The Theology of Jonathan Edwards. Phyllis McGinley wrote in 1961, and if they had been taught aright, small children carried bedwards, would shudder lest they meet their knight, the God of Mr. Edwards. Abraham's God, the wrathful one, intolerant of error, not God the Father or the Son, but, the God, but God the Holy Terror. And you, you, you read that and you shudder. First of all, you pray for their souls because it seems as if they have no knowledge of who God is. And yet Jonathan Edwards, his whole point was to bring people to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And uh, those, were, those were some of the uh, contentions that others had of Jonathan Edwards. And I would like to continue with a quote as well. Um, See if I've got the right one here. Here we go. Uh, Murray goes on. In this volume, we offer. He's talking about the biography he's writing. In this volume, we offer Edwards' only key to the reason why the world will always disagree over Christian experience and Christian truth. It is that in all centuries, the saving knowledge of God inevitably brings division. It opens to some a word, a world of reality which remains closed to others. And none can, and he's quoting Edwards here, and none can truly worship but who have the earnest of their glory from on high, God's nature in them. 
of those who receive the faith of the gospel, Christ says to God the Father, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Here is the fundamental reason why opinions on Edwards are so divided and why his biographers should also differ so widely. The division runs right back to the Bible, and depending on where we stand in, the re in relation to, to Christ, we shall join ourselves to one side or the other in interpreting this man, who was, first of all, a Christian. You can see the division that existed, and does still exist today for any who study Edwards, either secular or Christian. They have a deep divide of who Edwards was. Some call him, uh, tell that he is, he is out of his mind. And yet, this man has brought forth so many godly principles that we can live our lives by. And we see those in his works. If you read Jonathan Edwards, you quickly realize that you cannot read through Jonathan Edwards using Evelyn Wood's speed reading course. It's not possible. You have to reread Edwards several times, just on some, on one paragraph. Sometimes you have to go over it three or four times, and sometimes you have to read a whole treatise and go back and read it again to get the idea of who Edwards is and what he's talking about. And it's not because he's rambling; it's because our minds are so small compared to his. So, with that in in mind, we'll start reading through some of the some of the things that I have outlined in, um, in his works. And this is the, uh, I think I showed you this a little earlier, the works of Jonathan Edwards, volume one. There's two volumes on this set. And it's uh, uh, both, uh, they're both wonderful works. I've read through several of his treaties and dissertations. And um, I think I have come to appreciate Jonathan Edwards in a whole different light than I had before. But um, the author of this, uh, there's a couple people who are involved in this work. Um, one, of the, one of them was Jonathan Edwards' great-grandson, and some others who are involved as well. And many of the memoirs that are contained in the book come from his great-grandson. And uh, they've been edited uh, to include some of the more pertinent things that are, are written. Um, reading this, uh, religion, uh, this is talking about the issue of religion in the education of people. And he says, religion strengthens the power of man. It never en enfeebles him or them. It at once cuts off those guilty pleasures and those unworthy pursuits, which not merely impede the progress of the understanding, but in many cases are absolutely fatal to its energies. And it forms those mental habits as well as produces that outward propriety of conduct which are most favorable to the cultivation of man's noblest facilities. It would be easy to record a lengthened list of names enrolled with never fading honor, both in the schools of science or secular teaching and in the church of God. The gospel of Christ has uniformly been the friend of solid learning. Nor are those persons the judicious friends of the gospel who are disposed to disparage the exertions and acquirements of intellect. The Christian church dreads the veil of darkness, but it rejoices in the light. 
And you see how the perspective here is that um, Christianity is the, is the means by which God uses to enlighten the world, not just in the church, but in the secular world as well. And we see Edwards doing that throughout his works. And it's an amazing revelation as you come to understand who Edwards is and how he taught and what he taught and how that is aid, has aided man in his understanding of God and the world around him. And uh, we, have, we have many examples to go through uh, in the book. However, um, just a couple more quotes I would like to read. Well, it's, um, I'm just going to start right in with the memoirs then. Uh, I think I had read some of these. We read his, um, several of his resolutions. And in his memoir, memoir, he actually refers to some of those rev, uh, um, resolutions. We're not going to go back to those. But uh, and if you would like to read what they are, I'd certainly lend you my book on that. Um, but let's begin with the, you see which, where it starts here. Um, I, I kind of highlighted the diary entries and given them numbers and a brief title just to kind of help you understand what we're reading about as we go through them. And the first one is, is envious of the prosperity of others. And this is what, this is what um, Edwards writes. And I, I picked these out. There's, there's many more I'd like to read, but I kind of picked these out to be the, the highlights of our study today. It is a great dishonor to Christ, in whom I hope I have an interest, to be uneasy at my worldly state and condition, or when I see the prosperity of others, and that all things go easy with them. The world is smooth to them, and they are very happy in many respects, and very prosperous, or are advanced to much honor to grudge them their prosperity or envy them on account of it, or to be in the least uneasy at it, to wish and long for the same prosperity and to desire that it should ever be so with me. Wherefore concluded always to rejoice in everyone's prosperity and not to pretend to expect or desire it for myself and to expect no happiness of that nature as long as I live, but to depend on afflictions and to betake myself entirely to other happiness. I think I find myself much more sprightly and healthy, both in body and mind, for my self-denial in eating, drinking, and sleeping. I think it would be advantageous every morning to consider my business and temptations and the sins to which I shall be exposed on that day, and to make a resolution how to improve the day and avoid those sins. And so at the beginning of every week, month, and year, I never knew before what was meant by not setting our hearts on those things. It is not to care about them, nor to depend on them, nor to afflict ourselves with the fear of losing them, or not to please ourselves with the expectation of obtaining them, or with their hope, the hopes of their continuance. That's what you call heavenly-minded. That's what you call looking towards the things that God has for us. The, the pleasures and the prosperity that God gives to others is not necessarily what God's plan is for us. And we're to be thankful if he gives it to us, but not to be discontent if he doesn't. 
And that's the thing that, that Edwards is struggling with here. You would think this would be a mundane struggle for Edwards. It was a daily struggle for Edwards in some of these things. He, he was not beyond the struggles that you and I have. He was deeply involved in the same struggles that we have and that we are familiar with. Uh, number two, not doing enough for the kingdom of God. find the reference to it here. And this is, I, I think, an interesting one, too. They're all very interesting. At night, he wrote this on Thursday, February 5th, at night. I have thought that this being so exceedingly careful and so particularly anxious to force myself to think of religions at all times has exceedingly distracted my mind and made me altogether unfit that and everything else. I have thought that this caused the dreadful low condition I was in on the 15th of January. I think that I stretched myself further and so broke. But now it seems to me, though I know not why, that I do not do enough to prepare for another world. I do not seem to press forward, to fight and wrestle. And the apostles used, as the apostles used to speak, I do not seem so greatly and constantly to mortify and deny myself as the mortification of which they speak. Therefore, wherein ought I to do more in this way? I answer, I am again grown to carelessness, to care, uh, I am again grown too careless about eating, drinking, and sleeping, and not careful enough about evil speaking. And you can see the temptation he has. In his own mind, he, he wrestles with this idea, first of all, to mortify the lust of the flesh, but also to do all things in accordance with, with his, his desire and his resolutions that he's made before. And he wants to live according to the way God wants him to live and what he sees uh, and how he reads the scriptures and sees how God wants him to live. And he's trying to mortify those sins. And he understands the necessity and he knows that he has not been careful enough. How many times have we gone through the end of the day thinking, how have I mortified my sins today? How have I grown in, in Christ in a way that would please him? And we see, that, we see that Edwards struggles with this idea. He feels completely inadequate. And he all, it also drives him to the cross of Christ in such a way that he is quick to remember who his Savior is, and that he deserves nothing of what he's got. Um, number three, and I titled this one, Telling God All. Just find it here. Here it is. He wrote this on Friday afternoon, July 26th. To be particularly careful to keep up inviolable a trust and reliance, ease and entire rest in God in all conditions according to the 57th resolution. For this I have found to be wonderfully advantageous to me. At night, he wrote, resolved very much to exercise myself in this all my life long, viz. with the greatest openness of which I am capable to declare my ways to God and lay open my soul to him. All my sins, all my temptations, all my, all my sorrows, all my fears, and all my hopes, desires, and everything and every circumstance according 
to the preaching of Dr. Matton's 27th sermon on the 119th Psalm. You can, you can see he is unafraid to bring all of his concerns to God. He's unafraid to reveal his soul because he knows that God already sees his sin. He knows that God already sees his sorrow. He knows that God already sees his happiness. He is free and liberated to converse with God in ways that sinners who are outside of Christ can never do. Because he has experienced the blessings of God in unusual measures. Those blessings come from a loving God. And he can be completely honest with him and with himself, and it liberates him from the uh, uh, hesitancy to confess your sins. Because these things, when he confesses these things openly to God, it frees his soul from the guilt of sin. And he knows that those sins are forgiven. Um, Number four. And feel free to, uh, I, I failed to mention this, but feel free to jump in. If you have similar, similar things in your life as we cover these things, exempl- um, uh, uh, amplify them if you would. Um, dealing with temptation, number four. He says, he wrote this on Saturday afternoon, July 27th. When I am violently beset with temptations and cannot rid myself of evil thoughts to do something to do something in arithmetic or geometry or some other study which necessarily engages all my thoughts and, unavoid, and unavoidably keeps them from wandering. So if you want to fight temptation, how do you do it? You, you get into a subject that demands all of your thoughts. And my first suggestion would be to read Edwards. (laughs) If you want to consume your thoughts, read him. All right? Uh, I don't think you have to go into math or geometry to do that. You just read some of his works, and and I think that'll take care of the problem all by itself. But, uh, you know, you you see, he's, he's developing strategies, and we can develop our own strategies for dealing with temptation. We are not tempted above what we are able. God only gives us that what we which with, with that which we can um, uh, endure, and how to deal with them. Our job is to come up with the strategies to keep us from sin, and we are so prone to sin. Um, number five. This one I've entitled "Vengeful Thoughts." He wrote this Saturday morning, August 21st, 1st, uh, 4th, rather. Have not practiced quite right now. I, I think this is a very telling, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt myself on this, but I, I think it's a very, um, <laughs> a very telling uh, explanation of the thought of revenge. And this one cuts close to the bone. Uh, have not practiced quite right about revenge. Though I have not done anything directly out of revenge, yet I have perhaps omitted some things that I should otherwise have done, or have altered the circumstances and manner of my actions, hoping for a secret sort of revenge thereby. I have felt a little sort 
of satisfaction when I thought that such an evil would happen to them by my actions as would make them repent what they have done. You understand what he's saying there? And that's a common subconscious thought that we always have with people that we want to have revenge on. I'm not going to do something that might help them grow spiritually. I'm going to admit to omit something that I should have done in order to prevent me from having a thought of revenge. And that's what he's wrestling with here. To be satisfied for their repenting when they repent from a sense of their error is right. But a satisfaction in their repentance because of the evil that is brought upon them is revenge. This is in some measure a taking or the taking of taking the matter out of God's hands when he was about to manage it. Who is better able to plead it for me? You see the thought there? Why? Why am I doing this? I'm taking this, I, this idea of revenge and, put in, and putting it on another person. I should be completely separated from the idea of revenge. And when I do something that causes a form of revenge, I'm taking it out of God's hands and I'm doing it instead of letting God do it for the good of the person and for my good. That's the danger of thinking in terms of revenge. And he's, he's close, and uh, he's uh, good at explaining this, and he's close to the realities of how revenge works in our hearts. Well, therefore, may he leave me to boggle at it. He writes again at sunset, I yet find a deterrence on God to look unto him for success and to have my eyes unto him for his gracious disposal of the matter. For want of a sense of God's particular influence in ordering and directing all affairs and businesses of whatever nature, however naturally or fortuitously they may seem to succeed, and for want of a sense of those great advantages that would follow therefrom, not considering that God will grant success or make the contrary more to my advantage, or will make the advantage occurring from the unsuccessfulness more sensible and apparent, or will make it of less present and outward disadvantage, or will some, or will some way to uh, so order the circumstances as to make the unsuccessfulness more easy to bear, or several or all of these above. This want of dependence is likewise for want of the things mentioned July 29th. Remember to examine all narrations I can call to mind whether they are exactly according to verity. So he's saying, um, you know, make sure that uh, you understand that the providence of God in our success or failure does not mean, uh, uh, let me phrase it like this, many times God allows circumstances in our lives where we fail, and that failure is used for our good and to show us what not to do. And at the same time, our successes might show us what to do. And we, we call upon God's mercy and his guidance to guide our footsteps in all of the, da the daily activities that we have for the purpose of doing God's will. So we have to be willing to, to thank God for the unsuccessful events that happened and for the successful events. We can't just praise God for the, things that, the good things that happened to us because if we only had good things, we would never be dependent upon God. But the unsuccessful things direct our path. We know that that's not the path that God wants us to go on. 
And when you start to understand how God works in the unsuccessful events in our lives, we're more prone to trust him for the future events of our lives. Uh, number six, and I think many of us will enjoy this one. And I entitle it, um, Old Men's Habits. <laughs> old Men's Habits. I observe that old men seldom have an advantage of new discoveries because they are beside the way of thinking to which they have been long used to. None of us are guilty of that. I know that for a fact, right? No, we're Christian men. We're, we're not susceptible to such error. Resolved. If ever I live to years that I will be impartial to hear the reasons of all pretended discoveries and receive them, if rational, how long soever I have been used to another way of thinking. My time is so short that I have not time to perfect myself in all the studies. Wherefore, resolved to omit and put off all but the most important needful studies. And the point that he's making here is, is that, as you well know, that we grow, we grow accustomed to our habits, even if they're bad habits. And the point he's making is, don't, don't push off new ideas. And I think, for the most part, he's saying for younger men, be prepared to be challenged of your habits. Be prepared to be challenged by new ideas. And be prepared to, to be able to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. I mean, all of these things are important. Let's not be so entrenched in our religion that we can't hear anything that we haven't heard before. And I think that's his point. Number seven, failure of duty is what I entitle that one. Let's see if we can find it here. Here it is. Monday, January 20th. I have been very much to blame in that I have not been as full and plain and downright in my standing up for virtue and religion when I have had fair occasion. Before those who seem to take no delight in such things, if, if such conversation would not be agreeable to them, I have in some degree minced the matter that I might not displease and might not speak against the grain more than I should have loved to have done with others to whom it would be agreeable to speak for religion. Any of us guilty of that one? How many times have we kind of pulled back from the truth of the gospel with people who don't agree with the gospel for the sake of not having to put up with the argument? But in other circumstances, when we are with people that we know who are religious folks who understand the things of God, we're very conversant in those topics. But we're not ready to defend it against the world. And I think we all are guilty of that one. I ought to be exceedingly bold with such persons, not talking in a melancholy strain or in a downtrodden type of way, but in one confident and fearless, assured of the truth and excellence of the cause. And that's how we should live our lives, bold in the things of Christ. And then um, 
deathbed values, he says in number eight. And this is something that older people start to think a lot about. And you can tell it. And you can tell it by speaking with the saved and the unsaved alike. There's an old saying that says, uh, I wish, on, on your deathbed, I wish I had spent more time in the office. The point is, is that I should have spent more time with my family. And he has, uh, he lets go on this one. He says, let everything have the value now, which it will have upon a sickbed. And frequently in my pursuits of whatever kind, let this question come into my mind. How much shall I value this upon my deathbed? That's a probing question, isn't it? Because it cuts right to the, ha the, to the matter of what's important in our lives. What is important in our lives? What do we count important? And are we going to regret what we did on our deathbed? Should we be provided a deathbed, which we are not guaranteed? Um, the next one, I think, is, is, is suitable for today, and I entitled it, The United Prayers of the Saints. And it goes like this. He wrote this on February 5th. I have not in times past in my prayers enough instead on the glorifying of God in the world, on the advancement of the kingdom of Christ, the prosperity of the church, and the good of man. Determine that this objection is without weight, these, that it is not likely that God will make great alterations in the whole world and overturning in kingdoms and nations only for the prayers of one obscure person, seeing such things used to be done in answer to the united prayers of the whole church. And, if, and that if my prayer should have some influence, it would be in, imperceptible and small. So the idea here is the prayers of the church. I mean, our prayers are important, but he downplays the importance of his prayer compared to the prayers of the church united. And that's why we have prayer meetings. We, we gather on Wednesday nights for the purpose of a prayer meeting that our united voices might ascend up into heaven for the sake of changing the events of the world. That's what we do prayer meeting for. Whether it's the events of our lives, which affect us in this world, whether it's the lives of our elected officials, whether it's the lives of those who are persecuting us, whether it is the lives of those who rule over us. Our united prayers as a church, uh, as an independent church, and as the church universal, is used to sway the mind of God. We don't understand that, but we know that that's what God wants. He wants our prayers. He wants to hear our dependence upon him to solve the problems of the world. And we see that in, in Edward's uh, view. Uh, we have um, another one on old habits die hard. And he writes, Saturday, February 22nd. I observe that there are some evil habits which do increase and grow stronger, even in some good people as they grow older. Habits that much obscure the beauty of Christianity. Some things which are according to their natural tempers, which in some measure prevail when they are young in Christ, and the evil 
the evil disposition having an unobserved control, the habit at last grows very strong and commonly re regulates the practices until death. By this means, old Christians are very commonly, in some respect, more unreasonable than those who are young. I am afraid of contracting such habits, particularly of grudging to give and to do, and of procrastinating. So these cut right to the heart, don't they? I mean, they, they, they cut right to our Christian living and how we live and how we exercise our graces to God. Uh, he, he goes on, uh, number 11, self-denial. And he writes, he writes this. To practice this sort, uh, he writes this on Monday, March 16th, to practice this sort of self-denial when, as, as sometimes on fair days, I find myself more particularly disposed to regard the glories of the world than to be betake myself to the studies of serious religion. Well, how, how many times does that one hit us? That one hits us pretty hard, doesn't it? Um, opinions others have of me, number 12. Have any of us ever worried about that one? To mark all that I say in con conversation merely to beget in others a good opinion of myself examine it. That's an interesting. You know, what we say, do we say it for the good of others or do we save it, say it for our own praise and glory? And that's a struggle we all have. And that's simply pride. And um, he, thought it, he thought it enough to write it down in his diary entry. So he obviously had some thought on it in regards to it. <clears throat> um... 13, others copying our corruptions. Consider that bystanders always copy some faults, which we do not see ourselves, or of which at least we are not fully sensible, and that there are many secret workings of corruption which escape our sight and of which others, are, are sen are, others only are sensible. And he makes a resolution. He says, Resolve, therefore, that I will, if I can, by any convenient means, learn what faults others find in me, or what things they see in me, that appear any way blameworthy, unlovely, or unbecoming. And what he's saying here is very obvious. He says, Don't be, don't be opposed to others coming to you about your faults. Don't be opposed to it. Listen to what they have to say. And, and uh, you know, be careful, because what you do, other Christians might think it's okay, when in reality it's not. And uh, how many times have we done that? You know, we've seen the liberality of a, another brother or sister, and we thought, oh, I guess that's okay to do it. They're doing it. And that's how we think. Be careful. Examine what you do. Examine, examine yourself, because somebody might be of a weaker conscience than you, and they might copy your faults and mistakes and sins. And the idea is, is that we live in a life that's pleasing to God, and we put away those earthly things that would cause others to fall. We don't want to do anything that makes our brothers to fall. And what we do could be something that does that. Um, 
14, a need for gentleness. He writes this on Tuesday, February 16th. A virtue which I need in a higher degree to give a beauty and a luster to my behavior is gentleness. If I had more of an air of gentleness, I should be much mended. How often are we quick with a word or an attitude when in reality we should be quick with gentleness? I experienced it yesterday myself. I was quick with Ruth. It wasn't that I wanted to be, but I was. And what Edwards is saying here is fix your mind on gentle things. Fix your mind on being helpful to others. Fix your mind on on being kind and loving, even to the unlovable. Fifteen. Reproving others. And here's here's one that's going to scratch a few ears, I'm sure. When I reprove for faults whereby I am in any way injured, to defer till the thing is quite over and done with, For that is the way both to reprove aright and without the least mixture of spirit or passion and to have reproofs effectual and not suspected. You understand what he's saying? He says, if you're injured, don't immediately retort and reprove the person who's injured you. Let your spirit calm down. Let yourself relax a little bit. Take a deep breath. Don't go to them right away, but go back to them, analyze it yourself, look at it, examine the injury, and then later go back and talk to them. You remember what what happened the other day? It it hurt. And I would just ask that you take a look at it and examine it. You say it without passion, without prejudice, and with love and gentleness. And that's how you reprove. Um, Sixteen. The risk of self-deception. Now here's a man who is deep in the scriptures and he's dealing with the issues of thinking I might be self-deceived. And we are all prone to that. Here's a man of the faith. I mean a giant of the faith. And he struggles with the idea of self-deception. And this is what he says. It seems to me that whether I am now converted or not, I am so settled in the state I am in that I shall go on in it all my life. But, however settled I may be, yet I will continue to pray to God not to suffer me to be deceived about it, nor to sleep in an unsafe condition, and ever and anon will call all into question and try myself, using for help some of our old divines or the old writers, that God may have opportunities to answer my prayers and the Spirit of God to show me my error if I am in one. That's a humble spirit. The humbleness to, to be able to uh, examine yourselves to see if there's any error in your life and to, and to trust God and to help, uh, for God to help us in that process of self-examination and mortification of sin and to not be deceived in our own, in our own thoughts, which is easily done. We are quick to justify ourselves, but very slow to look to God for help. And the last one I have here is uh, rising early 
number 17, and he says this, and I thought it would be a good conclusion. I think Christ has recommend rising early in the morning. And this one was for Ron. I'm sorry he had to step out. Where is he? <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to him later. Of this matter we shall speak. I think Christ has recommended rising early in the morning by his rising from the grave very early. So, take that one for what it's worth. <laughs> but I, I, I think we start to see a glimpse of a man of God who is not afraid to question himself, question, question how he operates his life, is not afraid to, to, to hear the rebukes of other men. He's a, he, hum, he writes of his own humility without asking to be recognized as being humble. And we see, this was, uh, uh, Murray, uh, I didn't read this, but uh, one of the things that Murray talks about is the idea that um, some diaries should never be exposed. Some, some diaries should never be opened. But Edwards writes with the idea that prudence conceals a matter. But he writes of the things that are on his heart concerning God. And uh, we see how he judiciously enters his, his entries into his diary. And those entries in which he did not want revealed, he wrote in shorthand for the purpose of, of concealing the matter and that he could later go back and remember the matter in his own mind and time. And we see that, that uh, these things, he, uh, Murray writes, we don't want to write anything with the with the idea that they might be read by accident. And I think that's a good and prudent suggestion. If you are, if you are cataloging your thoughts, and this, uh, that, that we should do it in a prudent and, and um, a manner that if someone were to read it, they would see our innermost thoughts as it relates to our relationship with God. But it doesn't have to reveal our sin. We know what our sin is, and God knows what and we go to God in the fountain on a regular basis, asking God to forgive us of those things. And I, I'm going to end with a couple quotes here. Uh, questions? Somebody have? No. Uh, I, uh, this is uh, a quote from Alexis de Tocqueville. I do enjoy reading um, um, political philosophy. And uh, Tocqueville was a person who. Um, went through the French Revolution, and he came back to the United States to see what makes America great. And this is what he writes, and I thought it would be good to read the whole quote. And it, it kind of dovetails with the idea of the Puritans and the, the early American environment um, that we had in the formation of our Constitution and our Bill of Rights and our system of, of uh, government. He writes this, he says, I sought for the greatness and the genius of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers, and it was not there. In her fertile, her fertile fields and boundless forests, and it was not there. In her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and it was not there. In her dem democratic congress and her matchless constitution, and it was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard, pulpit, heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great 
because she is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. And then this last quote from Mark Twain says, few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. Well, let's pray on that.